Sometimes when you're faced with unbelievable news, it just kind of seems, well, unbelievable. It seems hard to believe. It's possible to have hard evidence of something right in front of you, but that something is just so unbelievable that you're thinking, no, no, this, this can't be. How can, how can I show myself that this is wrong because this can't be? Emily and I had friends at one point who were trying for a few years even to have children and nothing was working. They would go to the doctor and try this and it wouldn't work and try that and it wouldn't work and, and time after time it wouldn't work and they just got used to the pattern of every, every month a pregnancy test that was negative and their hearts would break again. And then our friend found us, found herself staring at a positive pregnancy test one day. And she thought what a lot of us are tempted to think when something unbelievable happens. Oh, test must be wrong, right? Must be a false positive. This, this can't be what's going on, right? And so when you're in a situation like that, it's tempting to just go and just take the second test, right? Because the first one must be wrong. I'll give you a life pro tip that there's never a false positive on a pregnancy test. False negatives, never a false positive on those. But when it happens, you're not going to believe me. You're going to want to get another test and confirm because it's so unbelievable that you're going to look at it and say, how can this be? How can, how can this have happened? Well, if that happens with the big things in life that are unbelievable. It happens even more so when we look at miracles like what we're going to look at today. We can have hard proof in front of us that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but it's a hard thing to believe, isn't it? Even, even with all the evidence, even with the testimony of the Bible, it's hard to look at and say, yeah, that happened, not because the evidence isn't there, but because it is so incredible we have lost friends, and they did not come back. And we have some of us lost family, and they did not come back. We are used to the pattern of someone dies, and they don't come back. That's how it works. And now, all of a sudden, here we are reading about this Jesus who died and who rose again, who broke the mold and broke the pattern. And it's very tempting to say, wait, that's, that's, not, how this, that's not how any of this works. That's not how these things happen. Well, the way that John wrote the account we're going to read and have already read once today is structured in such a way as to overcome that tendency toward unbelief that is in all of us, that tendency to say, this is too fanciful, too incredible, I cannot believe it. That's what some of us wrestle with. We wrestle with believing in it because it's just such an amazing thing. Others of us wrestle with something different. For some of us, we believe that it's true. We read the words in the scripture, we believe that it's true, but it's difficult to connect emotionally with them. Maybe you've heard the words preached every Easter for the last 20 or 40 or 60 years that Jesus rose from the dead and you're used to the message and it almost doesn't resonate in your heart anymore. It almost doesn't make your heart explode like it used to. You can believe in it, but still be emotionally detached from it. And then sing these resurrection hymns and think to yourself, this is incredible stuff that I'm singing. Why am I not jumping up and dying once? He all does save. Wear thy victory over. Why am I not just singing and shouting right now? Sometimes our emotions don't fully connect with the truth that we believe in. And the second paragraph of John's account helps us overcome that. So my prayer today is that as we look at this resurrection account, he will overcome our tendency toward unbelief and then our tendency to detach our emotions from the incredible truth that we are reading about. Let's look together at John chapter 20. 
We're going to read the first 18 verses, first two paragraphs. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, and she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped in to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not, not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. The words of the Lord. What we have in these words is a call to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, to put your trust in him, and by trusting in him, find eternal life in his name. And then along with that call, we have a clear picture of one aspect of the Christian life, the joy that the Christian life can give to us. We'll deal with the first one first. John writes this first paragraph walking through the unfolding evidence in the same order that he heard and saw it. This is the evidence that led him to conclude that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. He hears, then he sees, and then he sees another piece. And after he sees all three of these pieces of evidence together, he concludes, okay, he is risen. Jesus is risen from the dead. And he gives this testimony to you today 
in order to show to you the evidence so that you might see the evidence and you might say to yourself, yeah, I see it, I get it. Here's an eyewitness account. I I can't disprove it. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, this began a few verses ago in chapter 19, verse 35. If you got your Bible open, scan back there toward the end of the chapter beforehand, probably 10 verses before this. In verse 35, what we see is Jesus has just died, and John reports that he saw it. Then the soldiers need to break the legs of the two thieves that have been crucified alongside Jesus. This will speed up the process so that they can finish everything before the Sabbath begins. So they break the legs of the two thieves, but then the soldiers see that Jesus is already dead, and so they don't break his legs. So you got two testimonies here. John saying, here's what I saw, and then the soldiers who examine Jesus' body and say, okay, this one is dead. We do not need to break his legs. Now, why would he go into that gruesome detail? Well, he says so in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. He's talking about himself here. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth. And here's why, that you also may believe. So, so far up to that point, he's given you two confirmations, two eyewitness accounts, the soldiers and his own, to see, yes, Jesus really died. He didn't just go into a coma on the cross and get lifted down. No, he was really dead. Now we go back to chapter 20, and he's going to give you his own eyewitness account, what he saw, what he heard that led him to conclude what we all, when we examine the evidence, must conclude for ourselves, that Jesus really rose from the dead. So here's the story. In verse 1, a woman named Mary Magdalene, who had been a follower of Jesus and had done much to serve and care for him, uh, goes to visit his tomb. Now, this is a woman who loves Jesus dearly enough just a few days after his death to go to the tomb uh, to weep over him and to weep over his death and probably to do some other things to care for the tomb as well. She has in the past been possessed by demons with no hope that this torment would ever end But Jesus rid her of all of the demons and brought to her a redeemed and flourishing life. And just for that, she loves him so much. But then she spent all this time with him, has grown to love him as a teacher and as a person. And so now she is just so sad to see him gone. And she goes and visits the tomb. And what she finds there is that the stone that covers the tomb has been rolled away. This is probably a cave, and there's a heavy stone rolled over it to keep the thing sealed off. That's how people were buried often back then. She finds that heavy stone is rolled away. Now, it says that it's early in the morning, and it is still dark outside. That's important for two reasons. One is that light piercing the darkness is a big theme for John, and as the story goes on, it will get lighter and lighter. The light will pierce the darkness and reveal the great truth as they begin to see the evidence, but for now, it's dark. The other reason that's important in the story is just practical. You might wonder to yourself, okay, she gets there, she sees the stone rolled away. Why doesn't she look herself when the disciples look? Well, the reason is that it was still dark outside. If you've been in a cave before, you know how dark it gets in a cave. Even near the entrance of the cave when it is dark night out, you're not going to be able to see anything that is in there. So all she's able to see at this point in the darkness is the stone is rolled away. So she goes back to the disciples and tells two of them. That's what we see in verse 2. She goes and gets Peter and John, the author of this gospel story. 
Now, it just says the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John's modest way of saying me. She came and got Peter and me. Uh, That's one way that they exercised modesty in writings in that day. In verses three and four, we see John and Peter run together to go to the tomb. They are running because they want to see what what has happened. Has someone stolen the body? Have there been grave robbers? Has the gardener moved it? This is our Lord. This is the one we love, our teacher, our rabbi. We got to go and see what's going on. So they run there. John gets there first, perhaps a little younger than Peter. And in verse five, we see that John gets a little bit more evidence. This kind of unfolds like an episode of CSI, right? Clue by clue comes into place and we get to conclude ourselves what has happened here. What John sees is that the cloths, the linen cloths are, are lying there, which rules out grave robbery or anyone who was supposed to be moving things, moving the body. If, if grave robbers had come, they would have just grabbed the whole everything and just left, right? They would not have taken time and risked getting caught to unwrap the body for no reason. And if they had done that, they would have just taken any good spices or jewels or anything and then left and not taken the body with them. So it doesn't add up that it would be thieves or grave robbers. It also doesn't add up that the gardener would have come and moved the body because the gardener would not leave the cloths like that either. Why would anybody leave the cloths if they are moving the body? So it can't be that someone has come in and taken the body or they would have taken the cloths too. So that rules out that possibility. Now we got to figure out, okay, how did that stone get rolled away? And where is the body if no one took it and the cloths are lying right there? In verse six, Peter arrives and true to his personality, he just boldly goes right in, not waiting for anything. And then John goes in after him. And in verse seven, we see the final piece of evidence. Not only are the cloths there, but the face cloth is there and it is folded and put into another place. That's a sign that there was a living human in the room. Somebody had to fold it and put it in a separate place. So it could not have been grave robbery. It could not have been anybody moving the body because they would have taken the cloths with them. Yet there was somebody alive in the tomb who folded the cloth and laid it down. And that is when we get the testimony in verse 8. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. He sees that the stone is gone, just as Mary said. He sees the cloths are there. He sees that the face cloth is folded and laying in a different place. And he says, oh, nobody broke into this tomb. Someone broke out of this tomb. And there's the moment where he believes for the first time that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now you might wonder, why weren't the scriptures enough to convince them, right? Didn't the scriptures say that he would die and rise in three days? And didn't Jesus say many times that he would die and rise on the third day? Well, yes, and that question is answered in verse nine. John believes based on seeing the evidence, not on the testimony of scripture. And why? Well, because of verse nine. For as yet, they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. 
And then after this, the disciples go home, and that is the end of that piece of the story. So part of what's interesting here is that really the scriptures should have been enough to convince John, all of the disciples, Mary, all of them, that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They had enough in prophecy to know that this was going to happen. And not only this, but Jesus says many times, especially in the other gospels, see, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and he will die and on the third day he will rise. Like he's told them explicitly multiple times that he is going to die on, he's going to die and he's going to rise on the third day. So they've got no excuse for not believing, right? They have the testimony of the Old Testament pointing them forward. They have Jesus' words, very God's words, spoken to them that he's going to rise on the third day. So what ought to be happening is that here on this third day, they should have all gathered outside the tomb and said, let's have the first Easter sunrise service right here. It's the third day. He's going to rise from the dead. Let's greet him on the way out of the tomb and crown him Lord of all if they had known, but they didn't get it. The scriptures should have been enough but they weren't enough. And what makes this so profound is that God in his mercy lays out a trail of evidence for John to put the pieces together and see, oh, there's no other explanation for what I see. The scripture should have been enough, but when that wasn't enough for John, God laid out the evidence for him. And this matters for us because the Lord does the same mercy for us. Now, it ought to be enough to have it right here in the scriptures, the authoritative words of God that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That ought to be enough to put your trust in the resurrection of the dead, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. God has the power to do it, and if he says he did it, he did it. That ought to be enough. But if that is not enough for you, God has done the same mercy for you that he did for John here, and that is leave a trail of evidence that you can look at, do the math, and conclude, okay, there is no other plausible way to add up what I know than to admit that Jesus rose from the dead. I'll give you just some of the evidence this morning, but there is much more out there. We've put some of it up on our Facebook page. There's even more than that that's out there. It almost feels like a never-ending trail. You have, at the very least, four independent written eyewitness accounts just in your hands if you're holding a Bible right now. That's that of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke, and of John. There are four accounts, four people who wrote and say, I saw him die. I saw him risen from the dead. I saw the empty tomb in between. Now, you would be hard-pressed to find any event in ancient history that has four independent written eyewitness testimonies preserved today. In fact, I'm not sure any of us really could. Maybe some of us could if we spent a lot of time in a library. I do know this, though. All of the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, if you add it all up, there is no event in ancient history that has more historical evidence attesting to it. So if you want to throw out the resurrection of Jesus based on lack of historical reference or lack of historical evidence, you've got to throw out all of ancient history because there's nothing that's written down that has any more record than this does. 
Not only those four accounts, which were all bound together and published rather widely in the first century, read by people who were alive then and who could have said, no, I saw it and that's not how it happened. But no, these accounts were instead received by people, even received by people who for a while were insisting that he could not have risen from the dead, but then read the eyewitness accounts and their hearts are changed. Not only that, but Paul gives a long list of people who have seen the risen Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to, you can turn there in your Bibles. I'll read it to you. Now, this is one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament, only a few decades after these things happen. And so almost all of the people who saw the risen Jesus are still alive. Certainly very many of them are still alive. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, here's what he says. For I delivered to you, that is the Corinthian church, as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So they have the same story. He died, he was buried, he rose. And here's where it gets interesting. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So you have a long list of people, most of whom were still alive in that moment, that the readers of 1 Corinthians could go and ask, hey, is he making this up? Or were you really part of that crowd of 500 people that saw Jesus after he rose from the dead? They could go and ask and hear, yeah, I I can't deny it. I saw it. I was standing here and that guy was standing right there. And then they can go and they can ask the other guy, okay, were you really standing right there? Did you really see the risen? Yeah, I was standing right over there. And just like he says, he was standing here. All 500 of these people have the same story that adds up. Many of them still alive. Many of them still able to attest to it when Paul gives account to it here. So that means you have then a fifth account of many people who had seen it that can be verified by the readers of the original work. That means he's not going to try to get away with pulling one over on anybody because everything he's saying can be verified by people who are still alive and have seen it. Add all of this and the other evidence together and there is no event in ancient history that has more historical evidence attesting to it than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only this, but the people who are mentioned here, the disciples and the apostles, many of whom are the same people, they go to their graves being hunted, many of them captured, many of them arrested, tried, many of them tortured to death over their testimony that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead, and not a single one of them recanted. Some of these are recorded in sources outside of the Bible, history sources. Historians look at this stuff and they say, we can't deny this. These men really died saying that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Even the author of today's gospel, John, lives out much of his life in prison, refusing to recant, refusing to say, no, I didn't really see him because he had seen him. Now, there's a difference between me and John. I'm up here today telling you what I believe. I believe he rose from the dead. John died and all of these men died telling others not what they believed, telling others what they saw. Very big difference between dying for what you believe and dying for what you have seen. 
going to their grave saying, I can't deny it. I saw it. It happened. So you add all this up, and there's only one way to explain this many people in history who were willing to die saying that they saw Jesus die and they saw Jesus rise. None of the theories out there work. The only real conclusion is that this man actually is who he says he is and that he really did rise from the dead. The Lord lays that evidence out before you today. As a mercy to you, if you won't believe it from the testimony of the scriptures, just like he did for John that day, laying the trail of evidence for him so that he could come to the conclusion of the truth that Jesus rose from the dead when the scriptures weren't enough for him. So the point then is that you must look on these things and believe that it really happened. The point then is a call to you to believe that the resurrection of Jesus was a real historic event. And later today, we'll talk about just what that means and how that ought to affect your life. Let's move now, though, to the second paragraph. If the first paragraph helps those of us who are struggling to believe factually in the resurrection, the second paragraph helps those of us who are struggling to get our emotions connected with what we believe to be true. If you believe this and you're thinking, there ought to be tears in my eyes over this, but there aren't, this is the paragraph for you to get your heart just where it ought to be. Let's look at verse 11. We'll start there. Mary is standing now, weeping outside the tomb. So it's already an emotional scenario, right? This man who she's placed so much hope in, this man who healed her of demonic possession and so many other torments, the man whose feet she washed with her hair and who she wept over so much is not only dead, but his body has been stolen or is gone and don't know what's happened to it. She's just out there crying. And eventually she gets the courage to stoop and to look into the cave and just see what the damage is, see what's going on. And what she sees in verse 12 is pretty amazing. She sees two angels, one sitting where Jesus' head had been and one sitting where Jesus' feet had been. That's not what she expected. And in verse 13, they ask her why she's weeping. So she's still crying. Uh, and she gives them an answer. And so they, they took him away. I don't, I'm crying because he's gone. I don't know where he is. So then she turns around in verse 14. And she sees Jesus standing, but doesn't recognize him. And Jesus asks her the same question. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So she's just having a big, ugly cry in front of everybody, right? The, the two angels, why are you crying? He, he looks at her and says, why are you crying? She's still crying in front of all of these people. Her mourning is deep. And even through her words, she does not stop crying because he's gone. And we don't know what's happened to him. And so in verse 15, through her tears, she, she asks, she thinks he's a gardener, and she's like, okay, if you moved him somewhere, if we can't keep him here anymore, just give him to me, I'll find a place for him. Like, she just wants to care for this body. And then, in verse 16, things get really incredible. Jesus says her name to her. And something about the rising sun and the increasing light every moment, and her name coming from his lips, and she recognizes who he is. And then we get what might be the most 
emotionally raw picture of faith that we have in the whole Bible. She just turns to him and shouts his name in Aramaic at him. Rabboni. It just clings to him. Everything that was wrong in her story is now right side up. Everything that was upside down is right side up. Now the story will end happily. Now all the things that don't make sense have resolution. Why? Because she sees her Lord that she loves there before her, risen from the dead. This is, this is not uh, like last week we talked about the sign of the donkey and the deep meaning of Jesus' personality, what it means that he comes in as the humble. There's so much meaning wrapped up in that donkey, right? This is not like that, though. Like the spelling of the name doesn't have some neat theological thing behind it. This is just her heart bursting like a water balloon all over the place, and she just shouts out, Rabboni, it's him, and she clings to him, full of emotion, and her weeping has turned to joy. Why? Because Jesus is alive, and he's standing right in front of her. Christian, here is a picture of what the good news of Jesus' resurrection can do to our hearts. He's alive. And he speaks your name and calls you to trust in him, calls your heart to explode with joy before him. That's just one picture of what it means to trust in him, to have joy that bursts and covers every sorrow because Jesus is alive. We have a picture of that in this woman whose tears turn to shouting and clinging to him. We have the same thing in him. Everything that is upside down in our lives turns right side up when we hear the Lord say our name and we realize that he is risen from the dead. Why is that? Because it changes everything about the story. It changes the end of the story. Without that, the end of your story, no matter how great it is, is death and decay forever in the grave. But with the resurrection of Jesus, the end of your story is death and resurrection to eternal life through Jesus Christ. That different ending changes everything about the story. That makes all the hardships in your life turn from worse after worse after worse, and then you die from just little blips on the radar that are going to be made right one day when he raises us from the dead. If you're young and you're facing the pressure that so many people face to accomplish much in their lives, young people today are put under so much pressure and taught that they only have 70 years and life is finite and make the most out of your time and you have to do everything and see everything and accomplish everything and work this job and then you graduate college and your internship doesn't go great and then your first job doesn't go very well at all and you realize I'm not actually accomplishing, I'm not the world changer that I thought I was and that can lead you into despair. Because you only got one life and the clock is ticking and time is running out. And how am I going to do as much as Steve Jobs did in his lifetime? The resurrection of Jesus changes all of that because your story doesn't end in death and decay anymore. The clock isn't running out on you anymore. Now, your story ends in resurrection to eternal life forevermore to do good works on a restored earth that he is building for us.
Changing the ending changes the whole story. I know now I'm hitting, starting to hit that middle age phase in my life, and I know now what it means to look back and realize that I was faster last year than I am this year, and I was stronger last year than I am this year, and, and it's hitting me that next year I'll be weaker, and then I'll, I'll just continue getting weaker and weaker until I can't do anything anymore, until my body expires. And some of you are far past that point, and you know well the feeling of being weaker every day than you were the day before. You know, it's like to look back on an athletic accomplishment and say, I'll never be able to do that again, that stuff that I did in my prime. And the narrative that we're tempted to believe is that your body just fades and fades and fades and fades until it expires and then it decays. Isn't that the most despairing story? And yet that's our story without the resurrection of Jesus. But change the ending and the whole story changes. Now every ailment is just a reminder that we have a perfect resurrection body waiting for us in eternity. Now every day of being weaker than you were the day before is just a reminder that a body that can do things you've never been able to do is coming on the last day when Jesus raises us from the dead. Change the ending and you change the whole story. That is what Jesus' resurrection can do for us. I wonder if some of you, that story I told earlier of our friend who is struggling to have children uh, may hit a little too close to home for some. There are many couples who struggle to have children. It's emotionally painful. And when you were going through through that, I want to give you hope in that. When you're going through that, there can be this feeling of despair. Like, are we going to leave a legacy after us at all? Are we just going to die, the two of us? Or is the Lord ever going to give me a spouse? Or am I just going to be alone like this forever? Will I leave any name after me? Will I leave any legacy when I'm gone on? Because once I'm gone, I'm gone and I can't accomplish anything after that. The resurrection of Jesus changes all of that. Now you don't have to worry about leaving any legacy behind or any name behind. Why? Because you are coming back. Your body is coming back to live forever, fully healed and fully restored. No matter what hardship you are going through, changing the end of the story through the resurrection of Jesus changes every hardship in the story. That is the heart-bursting joy that we have, just like Mary has, as she sees the face of her master and shouts out, teacher, and clings to him. This is why the Apostle Paul can say that we're always sorrowful and yet rejoicing because Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, after all that, it might be surprising what Jesus says next. It might even be a little confusing what Jesus says. Now, let's look at verse 17 and see what Jesus says next. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So, so all of that, Jesus actually tells her not to cling to him. Right? What's the point of that? Well, okay, let me tell you the story. In 40 days from this point, Jesus is going to rise up into heaven, and they won't be with him physically. He won't be physically present with them anymore. But that's not happening for 40 days. So that means Mary has plenty of times to wrap her arms around Jesus and embrace his presence before he is gone. So he's essentially saying to her, Mary, you've got plenty of time to grab hold of me, but right now, 
I have an urgent task for you. And that urgent task is go and tell the others that you have seen me risen from the dead. Here is the first person who is ever commissioned to go and proclaim that Jesus is risen from the dead. A message we'll read so many times in the book of Acts as the Spirit of God fills men to proclaim it. Here she is, the first one commissioned to proclaim that message. And it's so urgent. The people who need to hear it need to hear it so quickly and right now that he even tells her to leave his joyful presence and just go tell them now. That's more important right now. That's more urgent that you go and tell them that you enjoy than it is that you enjoy being with me in my presence, he's willing to say. You'll have time. The time will come when we will hug and we will embrace. But right now, run and tell your brothers. And this is indeed a picture of what the Christian life is for you as well. I wonder if you would like to leave everything the Lord is commissioning you to right now and just be with him forever. I confess, as much as I love all of you, I would rather just leave right now and be with him and have my heart burst the way that Mary's burst in that story. Why then, if there's so much more joy to be had there in his presence... Why has he left you here on earth, Christian? It must be because, like Mary, you have an urgent task to fulfill. Go and tell the others that he is risen from the dead. He commissions you with the closing words of Matthew, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. That commission, church, is why we are not in heaven celebrating right now. That is why we are celebrating here with masks on and frail bodies that could get a lethal virus at any moment. That's why we are still here, because that commission needs to be fulfilled. So the same thing is true for Mary, it's true for you. You will have your time in the Lord's presence forevermore, Christian. There will be joy upon joy in his presence. But right now, you have an urgent task to go fulfill. Go and tell the others that Jesus is risen from the dead. The Apostle Paul will say this very thing about himself in the book of Philippians. I'll read to you just a little bit of what he writes here. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He means the very same tension that Mary had there. To live is to do it for Christ and share the word of Christ. And to die is gain. It's better to die because then you get to go and be with Jesus. He then says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, that commission to tell others Jesus is risen from the dead. If he lives, he gets to do that. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Wouldn't Mary say the same thing? Her desire is just to stay in that tomb and be with him, for that is far better. But he says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Why is Paul still in the flesh? For the sake of those Philippians, for the sake of that church, so that they can hear his testimony that he saw the risen Christ. Christian, why are you still on earth? Because you have an urgent task to fulfill, to tell the others that Jesus has risen from the dead. Give your life to that task and seek joy in his presence forevermore. There's another thing we can learn from that tension there of Mary leaving that joy to go to the witness. And that is that our joy in Christ fuels our witness. 
she runs back to them with extra enthusiasm saying, I have seen the Lord. Why, why is that on her heart? Well, because she's full of joy because she just saw him. Joy in the presence of Christ leads to more faithful witness and more faithful evangelism. I wonder how many of us in this room believe that we ought to be sharing the gospel with our friends, our family, and our loved ones. And we look at our lives and we say, I'm not really doing it. Like, I know I need to be doing it, but I'm not actually doing it. You count up the number of people you witnessed to over the last two years and you're like, oh, that's, that's a pitifully small number. So many of us feel that way. How can we become more faithful witnesses? Well, one way is to develop not just your witnessing skills, but your joy in the risen Christ. Let your heart burst at the truth that he is risen from the dead and see if enough time in his presence and enough joy before him doesn't fill your heart so much that it overflows. Jesus says that of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I wonder if you find it, as I do, very easy to talk about things that you're enthusiastic about. Your, your son or daughter does something great and admirable, and you just want to tell everybody. You get a new phone that has an awesome camera, and you can't wait to take a picture in front of somebody to show them, look at this awesome camera that's on my phone now, or whatever it is that your heart is into. You can't wait to tell other people about it. Let your heart burst with joy for Jesus. And see if you don't find yourself having to stop yourself from witnessing so much because you're so glad that he has risen from the dead. This is why Paul writes things like, we labor for your joy, or I'm convinced that my joy will be your joy, right? Because he's witnessing out of his own joy and he wants them to have joy as well. Or he adds up all of his ministry endeavors and all of his works and everything he's ever done. And he says, I'm convinced it's all a loss compared to the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He goes through torment, shipwreck, all kinds of things to witness for Jesus. What's the fuel that keeps him going? The all-surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, his Lord. And so it is with Mary. With joy in his presence, she rushes back and she tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. We land today at words that we have not read yet this week, but we have read in weeks past. Why is John writing all this? What does he want for you? Does he just want you to give mental assent, just a check mark that, yeah, okay, sure, I believe Jesus. I don't know what to make of it, but I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He tells us why he wrote these things in the last two verses of this chapter. So let's look at chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, if you've got a Bible in front of you. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, that is what the writer of this book wants for you in this hour. He's written these things down so you might believe that Jesus is who he says he is. If he rose from the dead and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, if he rose from the dead, then he is who he says he is, and he must be the only way back to God. 
If he says, I am the vine and you are the branches apart from me, you can have no eternal life and you can do nothing. Well, if he rose from the dead, he must be who he says he is. If he says, I am the good shepherd, the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me. Well, if he rose from the dead, he must be who he says he is. He must be the Christ, the son of the living God. And that means that he is worthy of all of your trust, worthy of all of your faith. And so what you must do is look upon him, believing he is who he says he is, looking upon him for the forgiveness of your sins, and for eternal life. That's what I call you to do now. We close the book on the book of John now. Four weeks we have been in it. And as we leave it, my call to you is to turn from anything you attach yourself to, any identity you've given yourself, any sin that you love dearly, turn from it all and place your faith in this Jesus whose resurrection proves that he is everything that he says he is. Let's pray together.